You're listening to the Gov Future podcast, highlighting discussions and insights around innovative technology impacting the public sector. Hear from experts working with and inside the government on ways that technology is shaping the future of the public sector. On this episode, we feature a panel discussion from the October 19, 2023 Gov Future Forum DC event. We'll hear priorities shaping government technology adoption at different government agencies. On the panel were Andre Mendez, Chief Information Officer at U.S. Department of Commerce, Laura Williams, Deputy Chief Information Officer for Foreign Operations at U.S. Department of State, and Melvin Brown, Deputy Chief Information Officer for the Office of Personnel Management. Stay tuned. Well, hello, and my name is Kathleen Walsh. I'm also an executive director and member here at Gov Future, and we're so excited to have a panel. So please come on up, Laura and Melvin and Andre. Our panel topic is, you know, as Ron had mentioned, we don't theme the demos, but they end up having a theme of their own. But our panel discussion, we do theme. And so today's topic is on the intersection of data and cybersecurity. So we are really excited to have with us um, our panelists. So with that, we have Andre Mendez, Melvin Brown, and Laura Williams. And I'm going to have them take a minute or so to introduce themselves, let, let them let everybody know about their current role, and also share one fun fact about yourself. All right, thanks. Um, my name is Laura Williams. I uh, work at the US Department of State. I am a career foreign service officer uh, with a background in tech, IT. So they call us IT specialists. We have a whole bunch of acronyms and names. I've spent um, half my 20 plus year career uh, serving um, as in, in a very operational IT role in our embassies and consulates overseas. Um, and then the other half of my career in Washington um, running enterprise uh, service delivery of technology for the Department of State. Um, I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, I think the fun fact is for probably a lot of us that spend all day looking at screens and trying to make zeros and ones uh, work for our mission. Uh, when I'm not doing that, I like to do exactly the opposite, which is not look at a screen um, go to our national parks, go hiking, or just dig in the dirt in my backyard. So thanks. Do you have a favorite national park? Yeah, well, so it's hard to pick, right? Um, you know, Zion National Park is is beautiful in Utah, but they're they're all fabulous. Yeah, yeah. Who wants to go question? <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Good morning, Melvin Brown, Deputy CIO at OPM. Uh, been in the federal government now a little more than 30 years, so I'm, I'm starting to starting to learn me now. Uh, <laughs> Uh, started my career in the United States Marines and I did IT in the Marine Corps. Um, so I was around when we were putting computers on the desk. You know, originally we had the old green machines. So I, I've been around that, I guess, kind of that long. Um, I'm happy to be back home. I'm an alumni of George Mason School of Public Policy. So um, happy to happy to be back home. Um, fun fact, uh, last night, so in my spare time when I'm not um, – Trying to make X's and O's work. Um, I'm calling balls and strikes, so I'm an umpire. And so I, I had a game last night at, at eight by myself, and so I, I took a few baseballs um, doing a 14U game, so I'm a little sore. Uh, but excited to be here and excited about this topic and excited to be uh, with such a great panel of people. So thanks. 
Great. Well, thank you for your service, sir. First of all, and great Grand Teton National Park. That's my favorite. Yeah. Um, so I'm Andre Mendez. I'm the CIO for the um, Department of Commerce. Uh, and so uh, in that role, I have overall responsibility for the Department of Commerce proper and the 13 bureaus that compose it. Some names you might be familiar with, um, NOAA, um, the USPTO, the Census, um, and one whose work has been mentioned this morning already, uh, NIST, which are the purveyors of OSCOP. And a good friend of mine, uh, you know, uh, is is leading that project, and it's fantastic. It's absolutely fantastic. Thanks for mentioning it. Appreciate it. And so that's it. Uh, fun fact. Uh, this will be fun. Uh, so my wife and I run a rescue uh, operation for Australian animals, exotic animals. So we have uh, about 65 kangaroos and wallabies and uh, uh, all kinds of other interesting uh, betongs, uh, which are in danger of, um, of extinction, um, and uh, a couple of other uh, species of uh, Australian marsupials and otherwise. So if you're ever in Texas near Dallas, come on by and, and visit them, because you will never have an experience like that. Until you feed a seven-foot red kangaroo with a bottle, you're an experience. <laughs> well, you can hold on to it. I will start with you for our first question. Yeah, you, you have the mic. We'll pass it on down. So can you share examples of successful strategies in leveraging data for use with emerging technologies, and maybe what are some of the key takeaways from those experiences that you've had? Well, I mean, just about every single uh, one of our bureaus is leveraging data to fulfill its charter, of course. Uh, I think that the one you probably are most familiar with uh, is uh, NOAA, right? Um, you, you look at the weather every morning, um, and when there is a, a dangerous weather event, you look at it several times a day, Right, especially if you live in Tornado Alley or nearby, like I do in Texas. Uh, and so um, the use of data at NOAA is, is absolutely astonishing. Uh, one, because of the variety of collection mechanisms that they use. Uh, and, and second, because of the speed uh, of transport and analysis and dissemination of that data. Uh, if you think about, uh, you know, NOAA has uh, a, a, a solar probe that is literally uh, millions of miles away from Earth, and that's collecting uh, solar data in terms of, uh, you know, uh, solar flares and that type of thing, because they are important for radiation uh, dispersion and potential impact on telecommunications on Earth. Uh, they have satellites uh, near the uh, the poles, uh, satellites uh, in the in the equator, um, geostationary. They have tsunami uh, warning buoys in the middle of the Atlantic and the other oceans mostly in the Pacific, actually, um, that keep track of wave uh, movements uh, and immediately uh, notify if there is a wide discrepancy between an expected pattern of waves uh, and a road wave or a tsunami wave. Uh, they have sensors all over the United States, CONUS and OCONUS, uh, and in many parts of the world that are constantly measuring temperature and humidity um, and uh, and all kinds of other data that is processed literally instantaneously and turned around uh, in order to provide you with the best possible forecasts. And in cases of extreme weather, like tornadoes and hurricanes, uh, with predicted paths uh, paths uh, with the, you know the forecast uh, uh, of uh, the strength of the um, of, of the events, uh, and uh, and then proceeds to propagate warnings to a variety of systems, including your local television or radio but also alarm, alarm systems with sirens and everything else that are assigned locally 
that will hopefully protect uh, life and property. Uh, they also have this little thing called Miss Piggy. Have you heard of Miss Piggy? Miss Piggy is this lovely airplane that uh, flies into the middle of the hurricanes uh, and collects the data. And I'm scheduled to go on one uh, next time that there is a hurricane uh, you know, in nearby. So I'm, I have both trepidation and you know, an anticipation associated with that. It's going to test my mettle, but when they offered it, you know, I couldn't wimp out and say, no, no, thanks. You know? So I had to be the brave, you know, guy. So now I'm like, oh, boy. But, you know, this too shall pass. This too shall pass. Um, so, I mean, we can go from there to the census, of course, and data collection. Um, in case you didn't know, um, the census in 2020, about 65% of the data uh, was actually self-reported on a cloud-based, uh, you know, uh, set of questionnaires, right? So that's a fantastic leap from 2010. And we expect that in 2030, there will be a mixture of data collection and also analysis of other data points that allow us to do some very accurate prediction of um, uh, population movements uh, and therefore be able to calculate the census with a high degree of accuracy. By the way, the last census, we had the highest response rate ever in the history of the census since it was installed by the constitution because it is in the, in the constitution uh, at the origin of this country. So uh, GDP, BEA, BEA, right? So we collect all of that data and on a precise date, at a precise time, down to the second, we release the GDP forecast and GDP estimate. And I can tell you, that is a very important piece of data. And the timing is extremely important because the moment that it is published, within milliseconds, it's being sucked up by all kinds of computers who are then immediately doing algorithms uh, for trading and start trading stocks literally within milliseconds. So you can imagine uh, how important that data is and in the timeliness of its dis distribution. I could go on and on and on. But... Yeah, and actually we had Dr. Skip Bailey here last month from Census and he was, yeah. So he was talking about, you know, not just the, you know, once every decade census that you do, but how many, yeah. And about data integrity, data sources, where things are coming from. So it's a really wonderful discussion. And I encourage everybody, if you have not done so, to go back and check out that event. But Laura. And also data protection, because yes. that's title data that needs to be very well protected. Yes. And they are maniacal about it. I love it. <laughs> yes. And that's actually what we're talking about. So we had someone from IRS on the panel as well. So we definitely don't want that data out. Uh, so it was, you know, how do we protect that data? What measures are in place? And that conversation was interesting because it was talking, you know, a lot of times people say the government is slow to adopt. The government's a dinosaur, right? The government doesn't move as fast as industry. And they said, yes, but we do it because we have these protections that have to be in place. And so we have to get it right. We talked about you don't really have a choice to not work with the federal government if you're in the United States, right? where you have a choice to work or not work with different companies, whether or not they may be ubiquitous and it's hard to not work with them, you still do have that choice, but you don't have that choice with the federal government. So once you lose trust, what happens if, you know, how do you gain that trust back? And so we had a really wonderful discussion about that. But Laura, this leads me to my next question, which is about data, right? We always talk about data and data sharing, right? Data sharing and collaboration is incredibly important and we need to make sure that we're doing more of that especially it's crucial for national security. So what initiatives or best practices can you recommend to foster better information sharing without compromising security measures? 
Okay, well, I'm going to um, tell a little bit of a story, a little bit of a journey and build on, on what you just said. Um, first of all, uh, data sharing begins with data security. And when you're talking about national security, um, our country's national security, or those we partner with around the world, it can mean life or death. So let's talk a little bit about um, Afghanistan and our effort to assist refugees out of Afghanistan. I know that's not in the headline anymore. The headlines are what keeps me really busy right now. Um, um, I can maybe talk a little bit about that if, if you're interested, but let's, this, the, since we have some lead time on this uh, story, it's a little bit more interesting from a data perspective. Um, you know, it was chaos, you know, as we quickly closed out our operations in Afghanistan. And um, of course, we moved uh, United States and American citizen uh, out of Afghanistan first. But our efforts um, under Enduring Welcome um, continue to uh, track and assist Afghans who are partners to us over decades out of that country, um, transitioning to uh, other locations, um, and then um, uh, formally uh, immigrating to the United States through asylum um, uh, protocols. So think about that. Think about that data. Think about that case management um, uh, story that we have to build. Um, it was very difficult in the beginning, and the State Department had data, and the Department of Defense had data, um, and then there were folks in America, the other air agency folks that needed data, the CDP, um, CIS, um, Health and Human Services, right? So um, it's pretty wild in the beginning. Like I have uh, colleagues um, for a period of time, I worked in the Center for Analytics at the Department of State, um, and they tell stories about, you know, you know, that week and that day and that month, you know, when, when, the, when we first pulled out. And, you know, the spreadsheets, oh God, right? <laughs> like of the people and the, how do we track this? But um, we did get to the point where we stood up a system that allowed us to um, manage um, refugees and asylum um, cases. So I think it's uh, the number is now 4,000 um, refugees, but it's like 165,000 people because if you think about all the people that are 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 being um, tracked, not only is it that um, Afghan who worked alongside us at the embassy or alongside a, a DOD personnel as a as a translator, but it's it's their family members that are with them, and um, it's 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 very complex. Um, and I I just want to say that like along that path. You know, it really was a matter of life and death when you're trying to find that Afghan partner and get that person to safety and their um, family member to safety. And then, okay, now they're in Doha at a, um, a Camp Al Saria, and um, we are tracking now their their package, uh, their asylum package. And now, okay, they're coming to the United States. And now, you know, all the different pieces and parts of that. So the other thing to, that I think is important, and we've talked a lot about this today, but the data even within your organization comes from different places, right? It's not just the data on the ground. It's the data um, from the personnel system, 
Um, a lot of these folks were people that worked for the U.S. Embassy, right? So we have them in our personnel system, or it's uh, uh, um, uh, data from um, consular affairs, right? Which is a different bucket, right? So one thing that I, I think is really interesting that has become a theme, at least for me today, is security and data we've been working on, I think, a long time. And we have now some cool automation of our processes that we've been working on a long time. But we have been working less less of a long time, <laughs> shorter amount of time on integration um, and interoperability of our data. Um, and then the, the next, I think, you know, um, worthy effort will be um, you know, the experience, the digital experience of that data. And, and just about three weeks ago, the department, uh, the OCIO, so the White House and the OMB released, um, uh, you know, guidance on uh, digital experience for agencies to um, have a digital first experience when they engage with the public. And this is really exciting. Um, this, this then, remember when uh, Shannon said, you know, we need um, an OMB mandate and then all of a sudden we'll be able to do it right. Uh, you know, there it is. <laughs> you know, but it does help, right? Like all those cybersecurity mandates, you know, really drove our, our IT, our dollars, our investments to making data secure. We do care about that. Um, and now we have to make our data integrated and then we have to deliver that data in a way that um, creates less friction for people, um, whether it's you know escaping Afghanistan or whether it's delivering a service or counting people during a census. And yeah, I think no matter what, especially when we talk about federal government, governments in general, it's always about data, right? I mean, we continue to generate data at astounding rates. And so what are we doing? How are we managing that? How are we sharing that between different groups within one agency, inter-agencies, you know, multiple agencies? So, so all of these continue to be questions. And then we throw in cybersecurity on top of that, right? We want to make sure we're doing things in a secure way. So, Melvin, the next question is for you. How do you see evolving the evolving threat landscape impacting the way that federal agencies handle data, specifically sensitive data, and cybersecurity measures as well? Great question. And so um, as a deputy CIO at OPM, you know, we are the largest employer in the United States, serving 8 million federal employees and retirees. So we we have all the data. Um, and we have data that agencies didn't even know we had. And so we started to share with agencies about their hiring data, uh, about their attrition, um, about the demographics of, of the federal government. And what we discovered was we're an aging workforce with that's not very, um, we don't have a lot of early career talent. That's the right word. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, exactly. There you go. Uh, not a lot of early career talent. And so as, as we started to think about, you know, being more modern from a security perspective, you know, we had the executive order on, on MFA, multi-factor authentication and, and data in transit, data at rest encryption. And, you know, some of the biggest challenges um, that we talk about, we talk about we want to have a more modern government. And, and that's true. 
But we've also got a demographic of, I believe, and somebody correct me if I'm wrong, I think we now have four generations of workers in the workforce right now, which is create four generations of customers. And so uh, the aha moment came for me during COVID. And and the, the aha was when my mother could no longer physically go to church anymore, it was now virtual. So I go home, she wants, she says, hey, you know, I'm online now, she's almost 80. And she wants all new Fire Stick TV. So she wants, she's getting rid of cable. So, okay, fine. So we go to Home Depot. I set it all up. And I and I, I get an aha moment. I said, yeah, but is she modern? And the answer was no. Because her next question was, how do I do this? And so then I become tier one, tier two, tier three. Help that's helping her get that done. Well, so... When we talk about securing the data, when we send paper forms to retirees or their statements, or we come on with the, we come on with the online retirement um, application program, yes, it makes for more modern government. But my eighty-year-old mother is going to call me to do all the logging in. And so, as we talk about securing the data it, and and becoming more modern, we have a plethora of stakeholders that we have to consider, and you wouldn't think about the retirees or the people that are no longer, or the seniors that interact with government and the impact of all of these mandates that we have to be modern in an environment where they didn't grow up technologically savvy. And so those are the challenges that we face. I'm not saying that we shouldn't do it. I'm just saying from a customer experience and from a, uh, an OMB mandate, there are more customers than just the current workforce and the new workforce coming in. You have to remember the workforce that is leaving and the customers that are no longer interacting with government the way they used to. And so um, I don't say that we shouldn't do it, but I, I do use the framework of a people process technology and learning is my fourth pillar that we, you know, we put more emphasis on making sure we're teaching people how to be modern and how to be secure and not just turning on the technology saying that now that you have it now you're modern yeah hope that answers your question yeah you know and it, you bring up so many great points so it's interesting because as a federal government you're right you need to be thinking about that entire workforce also all citizens right that need to be served we had a conversation with the irs they said, this is great. We want to be digital. And you think about, well, who's going to digitally file? Probably younger generations. But everybody needs to be able to. So can you fully get rid of paper processes? Can you fully get rid of paper documents? And then we, right? And now it's kind of like, no, you can't. So what do you do? How do you become digital? How do you become modern while still needing, needing to serve everyone? And these are conversations and questions and topics that governments have that organizations don't always have because you can just force people. You say, we are going to phase out paper documents and you're going to have to comply. And if you don't want to comply, don't use us. You don't have to. You can go somewhere else. You can't do that with the federal government. We still have fax machines. Yes. What, well, I'm sorry. Does everybody know what a fax machine is? I said that and, and, and maybe I should check. Okay. We still have fax machines and we rolled out a chat bot for retirees and I'm, I'm asking myself, is my mom really going to use a chatbot? <laughs> Probably not. I'm her chatbot. That's yeah. kind of the point. So, 
Yeah, I think that those are great. And then also we had gone to this conference and somebody had talked about, they're like, well, you know, something doesn't work and we're down. Then we're just going to go back to the old way of doing things. We're going to go back to paper. And he goes, when you have workforce that doesn't know what that is, that's not the old way of doing things. That's the new way of doing things because the old way isn't working. And now we're teaching them something from the 1980s or early 1990s. And it was really interesting to think about because I never thought about it that way. So you, as we want to modernize, make sure we understand where's our baseline. Andre, the next question is for you, because as we're talking about, you know, different technologies, especially emerging technologies like artificial intelligence, as it becomes more integrated into our life and into different areas, especially cybersecurity practices, what are some of the challenges that the federal uh, agencies should be aware of? And then also, on the flip side, it's going to create opportunities. So what are some of those opportunities and how do we weigh this? Uh, okay. Uh, well, first of all, doesn't Melvin have a great voice for radio? Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, is that right? And there you go. I can identify talent. Second one, you know, for facts, you know, a, a famous Nobel Prize winner in 1998 said that the internet was totally transitory and that it would never have the impact that the fax machine had. He still writes for the New York Times today. <laughs> Nobel Prize. Just, Visionary. Just the facts. <laughs> just the facts. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, in terms of, of cybersecurity and the challenges that it presents, you know, with the usage of data, um, it, it, it is a, a dual-edged sword, right? On one side of the equation, uh, you know, we are going to be able to replace uh, what have been, you know, uh, some fairly sophisticated tools in terms of pattern detection and and, and change in pattern uh, detection uh, that have been very, very useful in terms of log analysis uh, and initial observation and triaging that then is augmented by, by human beings that are very knowledgeable about this. So from that standpoint, I expect that the tools out there that are being deployed uh, you know, throughout the entire environment, whether it is in the edge uh, or in the, you know, in the cloud data center, um, are going to continue to improve at a tremendous rate, right? With all of the data that keeps coming through, uh, you can start doing things as sophisticated as um, looking at uh, uh, time of packet arrival, right? So one of the things that, uh, that, uh, that bad people do is they tend to use multiple leaps in order to get to your site so that you don't detect that the traffic originally um, you know, came from, let's say, Oh, a country in the Far East uh, that we will we shall remain nameless, right? But you know, with some of the sophistication in the tools now, we can look at original packet uh, header timing information, and because they cannot defeat the laws of physics, we can tell that between the first packet and the last packet, there's been a number of milliseconds that are by and large incompatible with it being in the data center of last uh, you know uh, jump. Uh, where in all likelihood it will be a much smaller interval of time, right? And so you can start doing that type of um, in-depth data analysis that would be impossible to do uh, without having an engine behind it uh, that has been fully trained with machine language, uh, you know, uh, to to identify those patterns. So tremendous amount of help there in terms of uh, of going through that process. I think that we're going to see a substantial amount of uh, of usage of those patterns also in terms of uh, you know uh, behavior patterns as they relate to 
uh, to typing speed, to typing sequencing, although there's some amount of bias associated with that, uh, I think that you're going to see those tools because they will be early precursors and maybe if not determinative uh, in terms of final outcome, but certainly able to, to sort of pop up, hey, this is an issue that we need to take care of. But then there's the other side of the equation uh, that is not so good. And that is the fact that our adversaries will in turn be leveraging, uh, you know, AI, uh, in, in order to, uh, look at overall data patterns, not only in, you know, in trying to break into your system, but in leveraging an entire slew of information that is available about you in the myriad of, uh, of data sets that are, uh, that exist throughout the entire world. Be they, um, you know, email that has been compromised, be it uh, your own voluntary sharing of information uh, on social media, um, be it uh, databases that have been compromised that have data about you from a financial standpoint. You know, if you recall, it wasn't too long ago that Equifax uh, had, uh, had a data stolen to the degree of, I think, 113 million people, right? Do you think that data just, uh, you know, was stolen and then disappeared? No. That data is kept out there in very large databases. And what you're going to see is more and more of the usage of artificial intelligence engines in order to literally grasp all of this information because their large language modules will mostly contain compromised information that can now be leveraged you know, in a remarkable way uh, to brute force your passwords if that still exists uh, to uh, if, if you're somebody, for example, like, like me. So I do a lot of speaking engagements, right? There's video and audio of me all over the bloody internet, right? How soon before somebody, you know, fakes my voice and my image in a video uh, in a Teams uh, session that has been hijacked to talk with my help desk and say, hey, uh, I'm having a problem with my password. You know, can you reset it for me? And, you know, and I don't have to do the tools right now. So can you set it for blah, 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 blah? And boom, there it is, Andre Mendes' identity and my login is compromised, right? You're going to see deep fakes like that appear. You know, you're already seeing it, but you're going to see it leveraged to the hill. So the challenge is enormous, right? And the advantages and disadvantages are, um, are you know, almost equal. And we have to be extremely careful about, one, using the advantages in a way that is not compromising to our ethics and integrity when it comes to bias or invasion of privacy because we care about stuff like that. Um, but with the understanding that on the other side of the equation, there are people that don't give the proverbial you-know-what about any of that and that will use it to any degree uh, in order to accomplish their objectives. And so it's a mixed bag, um, but a mixed bag that uh, we have to live with. Uh, because guess what? You know, it was funny about uh, six months ago when, you know, ChatGPT sort of exploded upon the consciousness of the general public. There were all of these extremely educated people, extremely, uh, you know, enlightened and respected people saying, we need a pause. As if this was a uniform, uni you know, environment right. in which if we agreed that we needed to pause, everybody would say, oh, yes, let's pause. Like, are you serious? How do you say pause in Chinese? I don't know. But, but I know that it's not likely that everybody who has ill intentions are going to say, well, you know, we have to abide by that because everybody thinks it's a good idea. Come on. You know, there's no pauses. There's no pauses. The Pandora box is open and everything is out, right? And it never gets closed. I have tried, you can put toothpaste back into the, the, the tube. You can literally have it by squeezing it on the side and seeing it go back in because you create a vacuum. You cannot undo this, right? 
This you have to continue to advance. Make sure that you're always ahead of what the adversary is, is doing, because otherwise, you, you know, you're facing extinction, right? Imagine, you know, when bronze, you know, was was uh, replaced by iron in terms of making weaponry, right? And the Etruscans out there say, hey, hold on a second. I will be a bronze. You have iron. Can you give me a chance? Yeah, it doesn't happen. It's the same thing in terms of cybersecurity and the war that we're in constantly every single day. You know, we talk a lot about deep fakes, right? This brings up data issues. This brings up security issues, cybersecurity, where you're right. You can just about fake anything. Now we say you can no longer believe what you hear, see, or read, which is very scary. And you may say, yeah, you could fake me, but why would someone, right? Like, why me? Maybe someone would do it a celebrity. We live in Maryland. And a few months ago, there was something that made the news where uh, a granddaughter's voice was faked on the phone, called up the grandparents at, you know, three in the morning. They were sleepy. The the granddaughter's crying on the phone, who they thought was a granddaughter, begging for money. Something happened. They go, they send money. It wasn't actually the granddaughter. And now they're out a few that grand, a few, you know, thousands of dollars. Um, that can continue to happen. And if we don't have awareness in place, we don't have, you know, data measures, cybersecurity measures, whatever that is, it's only going to continue to happen, which is scary to think about. Uh, so I have so many more questions that I can ask the panel, but I do want to open this up to the floor in case anybody else has any questions. Real quick, facciamo una pausa. That's Italian for let's let's make a pause. Okay, facciamo una pausa. Per favore. Okay, and in Italy, the government of Italy said we are banning ChatGPT when it came out. They literally said facciamo una pausa, right? And and it's and then they said, okay, well, not so much, right? Because of what you just said, I think. I think that's uh, really powerful. I think you've got some questions. I do um, want to talk about zero trust a little bit, and and even in the Department of State, um, how modernization is helping us secure things, you know, in the corners of the earth. So, real quick story, real quick story, and then we'll open it up. Um, okay, so a couple of things. Like, I actually was around when we had the green machine, and we unplugged them. <laughs> and put in Windows 3.51 and told people what a mouse was. And I did that too. Okay. So we have a network, you know, most of us government agencies have a network that's still designed where, you know, you're in the embassy in, in Khartoum, Sudan, and the data has to go, you know, encrypted, right? Through the internet, all the way back to Washington and then back and forth, right? This idea that we have, um, you know, a really strong wrapper around our network and that everything inside the network is is secure and that's how we'll we'll communicate. Um, and and now uh, that we're moving towards new types of connectivity where you have a managed internet device, a managed mobile device, and you have and that's encrypted data at rest is encrypted, data in motion is encrypted, and you have uh, the cloud, right? We can now, do the department's business in new ways outside of our traditional network. And that is not groundbreaking to any one of those folks you mentioned from this latest generation, but it is for the government. It is a, a totally new way of computing and it's more secure, right? Because that managed internet 
device, right? That mobile device. If something happens to that device, it's not about like keeping people out anymore. It's about catching them as soon as they get in. As soon as they get into the network, which you may have read in recent headlines, we we did catch them as soon as they got in um, and then told other people about it. But it's about catching them when they get in and then stopping the spread. So this older school network architecture that government's been running on for a long time um, is is about to change. And is and we are changing and we are able to do a lot more of our business in this more isolated environment between the devices, the connectivity to the internet, um, and uh, just-in-time credentials, all, all of the types of um, tactics you can employ to in this zero trust model. So modernization is is security. Um, and there's just a lot of really good stories about how because of modernization, we can now remotely assist, say, for example, our IT team in Khartoum when they were, you know, getting out of there, when they were evacuating. And we could control that and encrypt that over the wire and then wipe it over the wire just in time, like not before the helicopters came, but right when we knew they were going to get out of there safely so that we didn't take down systems that they would need for life and safety. So lots of cool stuff happening there. All right. No, that's the going. So I, I do want to say to the to the cyber um, security piece, I, I want to speak a little bit about that because um, I asked us to consider a different language and, and just follow my training for a second. So most of us have an alarm system at home. We check it every night before we go to bed. We have locks on our doors. The locks broken. We fix it. We check that every day so that we can sleep soundly at night. But yet we don't check our cyber postures in our organizations on a regular basis. Doing a vulnerability assessment every year is you're kind of too late. We should be doing those on a regular basis. And there's no such thing as a cyber solution. A solution says that the problem has been solved. In the military, we called it countermeasures. And we had to do it all the time because our adversary was moving all the time. So we've got to get away from thinking we can solution cyber to think about countermeasures for cyber consistently, every day, all the time, continuously, just like we secure our homes. That's great. I'll let you go. Let you go. Uh, actually, I have a question uh, really has to do with sort of related note because we tend to think of cybersecurity as like you know attacks and malicious use and that sort of stuff, but now it's like we're starting to see kind of informational uh, threats where it's like as Kathleen was mentioning, you can't believe everything you see here, and it, it puts in this this thought that I, I've seen like uh, let's say some video evidence or some social media chat, and then you're like, well, wait a second here, I should probably be now increasingly asking myself, maybe that video isn't real. Maybe that text is real. So how do you how do you even think about trying to separate reality from that reality? Like now, especially what's happening now in the news, yeah. Oh, I have a real life example happened to me yesterday. Okay. So I got hacked in my Navy Federal account. And you know, I get the text saying, Hey, your password is reset. If you didn't do this, please call this number. So I called the number and I got a, a British person on the other end. And 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 I went, something's wrong with this. 
It, correct. I said, this does not sound like it. I said, is this the fraud department at Navy Federal? Yes. How can I help you? I said, well, I'm calling because I didn't, I didn't reset my password. And then he says, I said, what are you doing? He says, well, I'm reviewing your information. I said, how are you doing that? And you didn't validate who I was. So I hung up and I called the main Navy Federal number. Hi, Mr. Brown. How are you doing? This is Navy Federal. Can I have the last four of your social security number? And you're sick. Bingo. I got the right line. And I said, hey, by the way, there's a scam with a fake number matching to Navy Federal in a tax. She said, can I have that number? I gave it to her. She says, you're right. That's not a Navy Federal number. And so because I knew the script of what they should be doing, I was able to discern that that ain't right. I'm hanging up on you. Uh, and so I think that, again, I go back to the learning part. What should companies and banks be doing? What is the script? And, and how are they validating that? And if you get something other than that, then you should question that. Yeah, and I'm, I'm thinking, especially in you know, the State Department, you know, where it's like when you're gathering information from outside sources in countries that may not necessarily have, uh, you know, the same press situation. Uh, you know, for example, I say yesterday, and we were actually quite coincidentally, we were driving back from Fort Belvoir where we were at an event, and like just by, by this motor came back, like I think he's heading to, uh, I think he's heading to the Middle East, like right now, because I like, just happened to be the motorcade. And we were thinking, you know, there was that uh, situation that happened, you know, in Gaza. And and now people are calling into questions, like, well, uh, did this happen? Did this happen? And you go, well, there's video, there's audio. But, like, now you have this question, like, well, can you trust the video? Can you trust the audio? So when when you're out there looking at information, how, how do you sort of vet, like, this is an authoritative data source. This is not an authoritative data source. Yeah, that, that sort of stuff. Yeah. yeah, a couple of things. So, one, this isn't my area of expertise, but you should know that the Department of State now has an entire office that focuses on mis and disinformation. So, uh, you know, we have um, the, you know, global public affairs and we've always forever and ever, you know, focused on um, managing the message um, and listening to what everybody else's message is in the world and then translating that um, into English and translating English into other languages. That's been in our business for a long time. And we're using AI and even some chat, chat GPT to help us do that faster and better. So that's cool. Um, but this other, like newer office within the State Department is focused on mis and disinformation entirely. So I don't happen to be the right person to, to talk to that a lot. But let me pick up on one other thing you said. Our business is to work in China. Our, we, we have an embassy in Beijing. We have consulates all over China. Like Our business is to work in uh, locations around the world and to open emails from people from all over the world with attachments and links. It's our business. We're supposed to do that, right? And so we do spend a lot of time you know, there's, of course, the annual cybersecurity awareness uh, test, you know, that everybody just loves. We have tips of the day, all these kinds of things. Um, and, and it is probably still the number one, you know, uh, threat vector are, are these, I gotcha, I faked you out, you know, because I don't, you know, like Navy Federal has 
hi, welcome to Navy Federal, where your voice is your password, right? <laughs> okay, but so we're going to have to use technology, you know, to to keep us more safe. Um, but it, it is extremely tricky in our business. Um, and 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 back to the the comment on the network, that same network that somebody is opening attachments and um, as part of their daily job, interacting with. Um, you know, both Chinese uh, government officials and non-government officials and, com you know, commercial uh, entities, that same network is connected to, you know, it's the same network as the one that we use in Washington and the one we use in Bujumbura and the one we use in Berlin. So back to like re-architecting the network. Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. I like the casual sneakers reference. My voice is my password. I love that. <laughs> Any questions? This is for you guys. You can have a cookie here. Okay. Hi, Sandy Mustry. Um, since most of us in your industry and hearing your challenges and what we're talking about, what are we, you know, what are we not producing for you all in terms of what are you what would you be looking additional, you know, out of place or the way we can talk to you, communicate with you? As it becomes, these are really hot issues. And Melvin, you said something earlier because you said, you know, solutions, there are no solutions. Okay. It's all at all. So it'd be great to hear from you all in terms of what could we do for you all. Yeah. Okay. You might not like this answer. <laughs> but it's an answer. And I'll follow up with you exactly. on that answer. <laughs> so, so everybody out there is coming up with solutions all right? And everybody out there is driven by, uh, you know, just in, in a very lovely way, because I am a big fan of capitalism, uh, by a profit margin, right? And so that is great. Um, as a government entity that has 13 different bureaus, I am often found, I am often faced with the fact that 13 different providers have provided each one of my bureaus with a solution. Um, or sometimes one provider has provided all of my bureaus or part of my bureaus with their solution, but in a completely isolated environment. This is something, it, this is an unsustainable model. Right? So, for example, when we talk about zero trust architecture, um, you know, at the Department of Commerce, we developed a whole of commerce uh, architecture. We brought all the bureaus together, we put them in a room. We threw red meat every 12 hours or so into the room. They weren't going to come out until they had a zero trust architecture that was going to be done for the entire Department of Commerce and that we were going to be able to fund centrally and then administer by and large centrally while at the same, federated, uh, same time federating it enough so that they have control over their data and their environment. But we have visibility into it so that we can then exercise uh, that capability at a, at a central level to oversee the entire thing. Um, and so uh, we put together working groups with the experts from the bureaus and they came up with the architecture and now they're coming up with the solutions that we're going to deploy, right? So we picked an EDR and we're going to deploy it throughout the entire Department of Commerce. We picked an ICAM solution. We're going to deploy it across the entire Department of Commerce. We picked a SASE solution. We're going to do the same thing, right? So what does that mean? That means that we have to have the ability to deal with the vendors on a much larger scale, but at the same time, deploying a solution in an environment that is far more controllable, right? 
And so if I have, let's say, and everybody already knows what we selected for an EDR, okay? So we selected Sentinel-1. If every one of my bureaus goes out there and implements Sentinel-1 separately, I have gained nothing from an economy of scale standpoint uh, and from a visibility standpoint, manageability standpoint. Now, Sentinel-1 might make more money by having all of these different topics, right? Or these different instances. They win in the short term, but they lose in the long term as far as I'm concerned. So I want vendors that come to the table with solutions that can be centrally managed and then federated so that they have some degree of local control over their environment and data, but at the same time allow for a department level environment to exercise its authorities in order to provide value to the shareholder, which in this case is the American taxpayer, right? And so, Every time I see one of these vendors go out there and try to go around the Department of Commerce to one of the bureaus and try to sell a solution, and then to another bureau, to another bureau, it's time to have a come to Jesus meeting, okay? Because that is not acceptable anymore. I cannot manage my environment because guess what? They're all independent. They all have their own solutions. But guess what happens if one of my cyber one of my bureaus has a cyber breach? Who is going to be testifying up on the hill? C'est moi, tis I, <laughs> if you've ever seen Camelot, um, right? And so, no, that, that that's not acceptable anymore, right? We went through a process where we negotiated pricing for some of our solutions that were lower than what GSA had, had, had negotiated, right? So not only did we benefit the entire Department of Commerce's bureaus, but also the rest of the federal government, because that became, became the new pricing, right? This is something that we need to do department by department by department, because these silos can no longer exist. And vendors that understand that and come into my office and say, this is the way we don't want to do business with you, you have a step up on the competition. And vendors, they go around and look at strengthening, you know, site-by-site invoicing relationships, as I like to call them, in the long term. No go. No bueno. Okay. <laughs> it does and so i don't have bureaus but i have business units and and vendors do the same thing they can't come to me so they go to my business unit well okay if they buy it and and we have a cyber incident i'm going to the hell on that it's going to be me so i, I would i ask you to not do that we have a strategic plan um gao and oig do reports on our agency omb puts out memos know my business know my problems so don't send me an email telling me that, and, and I get them all the time, so I just, I need to tell you guys this. Send me an email saying, hey, I'm following up on a conversation that we had, knowing that I haven't talked to you is not going to help you. Or putting that reply in the subject line, like you're replying back to me contacting you, that's annoying as crap. And so <laughs> I, I, they end, I end up deleting them. So do yourself a favor, to j- just stop doing that. It's not, that's not going to help. If you really want to help me know my business, know the problems that I'm facing, and then help me scale whatever it is that you you have, because I have to consider the enterprise and not just silo solutions. I have to think enterprise. And then lastly, from a cyber perspective, um, one of the things that I don't think people pay attention to, but we build a lot of fences to protect in the house when our biggest threat is in the house. The person that lives in your house knows where all the valuables are and can do the most damage to your house. So insider threat is probably one of our biggest threats in the cyberspace. And so if you know how to build solutions to help us with that, and because you're paying attention to that, 
That's helpful to us. <laughs> Manning. <laughs> Just, um, so I 100% agree and have those same emails and you said it so eloquently. One thing, though, that government can and should do better is to help explain what our problems are. Yes, all these nice reports are out there. At the State Department, our business is really complex and it's broad. We do everything from nuclear non-proliferation to student exchange programs. So our CIO, Dr. Kelly Fletcher, we're so happy to have her. She's awesome. Um, she has done something brilliant that I haven't seen my most of my previous CIOs do, which is to have a CIO council within the department. Um, in the past, we've had some maybe, you know, more, more ego-focused the, the president here, aren't they? <laughs> CIOs where they're like, I am the CIO of the department, you know, to consular affairs. Kelly is the opposite. She says, look, I am the enterprise CIO for the Department of State, but Luis Coronado is the CIO of consular affairs. And my goodness, he needs to know the business of consular affairs and come up with technology solutions that serve that. And then there's population, refugee, and migration. And then there's education, cultural affairs. There's the myths and disinformation folks, right? I mean, and then there's every embassy from Beijing to Bujumbura, right? It is complex. So yes, we need um, our bureaus, right, to, to, to talk with vendors and to explain um, and and better detail than a GAO report can do what our business is, but then we need to uh, link up and the smarter, to your point, the smarter vendor will be able to say, okay, I understand how I can serve this federated part of your organization, but I respect that that part of your organization is connected to a, a larger whole. And so that's a two-way street. We got we have to do that with you all and and you all should be thinking um, how you engage with those those bureaus. Maybe it's more information seeking and learning the business, but then you actually do the sale um, in a more unified way. Yeah, absolutely. By the way, you keep saying Bujumbura. You should say Bangui. It's so much more fun. Bangui. Yeah. Central African Republic. <clears throat> Great. Thanks to all the panelists today. Uh, on the theme of intersection of data, um, the intersection of IT, IoT, OT, unmanaged assets, where does, how much airplay does that get uh, uh, in your meetings uh, as someone who supports OBO in this regard? Uh, it's, uh, we find a lot of challenges. We are just up against, like, it, there's no policy, there's no program. It's just, you know, air gapping was the traditional solution. So I'm just curious where that sits uh, on the agenda. And, and, and IoT is is a, 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 an endpoint. It's a device like any other, right? Uh, and uh, a lot of times uh, they have a lot more vulnerabilities because it's much more difficult to manage them. Uh, they're produced by vendors who are looking at minimal cost, right? Uh, and as a result, they represent a tremendous exposure. Uh, you know, one one might think of uh, you know home routers, for example, as an IoT. Uh, and right now, they represent one of the biggest risks we have, especially for people who are still relying on VPNs and on recognizing that a user, once they authenticate, they're trusted. 
because if their router has been compromised, uh, you know, they get, they'll get serious very, very quickly. Guess where most of the routers that people buy and Best Buy and so on and so forth are made? I don't need to tell you. You already know. Bangi. Bangi. You'll never forget that one. Bangi. Capital Central Africa. Anyway, and so that, that, that's very, very important for us. You know, we make no differentiation uh, and we ensure that our user education focuses on that, right? And that in our own environments, uh, that is a very serious concern. The other one that's very important and doesn't get as much exposure is SCADA systems, right? Because SCADA systems uh, are often very, very legacy, right? Because they're very well fabricated. They're supposed to, to be exist in an industrial environment. So it's not unusual to see systems that were installed in the 50s, the 40s. Uh, you know, for example, uh, in my previous agency, we were running, you know, a very large network all over the world of shortwave transmitters, right? And I had shortwave transmitters and control systems, SCADA control systems in North Carolina at Greenville in a station that was built in the mid forties. And then had transmitters that were done by companies that have long been distinguished in the late forties, early fifties, right? Well, I mean, they have to be part of my equation because I have to control them. If I want to automate schedules, right? If I want to automate uh, different antennas for shortwave and asymptotes and angles and so on and so forth for transmission, for a particular country, for a particular language at a particular time, I have to have control over that. Guess what? Cybersecurity was not a part of the concern back then, right? And so these systems, you have to get into these systems and they have control systems associated with them, but they have none of the modern accoutrements that allow you to get in there and do something. So this is huge, right? Electrical systems, right? I will bet you that for every single departmental agency, those automatic transfer switches, ATSs, right, that allow you to go from uh, city power to generator are SCADA systems that are controlled by computer systems that were built 30, 40 years ago because those things are designed to last forever. And so they are a tremendous, tremendous, uh, you know, vector for potential uh, damage. Um, since you mentioned OBO, so OBO is Office of Overseas Building Office, right? So think about maintaining our embassies and our consulates, the physical buildings overseas. Um, and some of the use cases are um, pollution monitoring uh, or um, the, the vehicle fleet is coming um, from outside inside the embassy compound is the gas tank full or not, or inside the building, you know, what's the temperature and how can we save some taxpayer money by controlling that better? So those are some of the IOT use cases at the Department of State. Um, in the beginning, the IT Bureau, IRM, um, had sort of a pilot, uh, low WAN. I'm from Houston, so I call it low WAN. but you know, um, we, we had a, um, a pilot on, on that. We have just uh, transferred that pilot over to another speaker that comes to Gov Future. I learned this morning, um, Landon Van Dyke. He's in the management bureau, and you know, look, you know, dollars are tight and programs. You know, the IRM bureau is really focusing on its enterprise solutions, and not that IoT can't be an enterprise solution. But it was kind of like close to the chopping block. And my bosses were like, let's, I know it's great and it's cool, but let's, we're getting rid of this. I said, nope, let's not get rid of it. Let's graduate it to a program office that's actually 
cares about this work, right? So in the management bureau, they care, they have a grading initiative, they care about this work. And of course, the overseas building operations is within the management bureau. So for IRM, it's not that we don't care about it or don't spend time talking about it, but as an endpoint, you know, okay, well, my nest is an endpoint, right? You know, my temperature control device, is it the IT folks that, you know, need to be managing that program? Not so much. But we certainly will partner with those program offices on the transport of that data and then the storage of that data. And so key to this is getting our enterprise Wi-Fi solutions up and running in our embassies overseas. That's key to the zero trust and that managed internet device, that whole entire new architecture. But I I, I love it and I'm glad we didn't kill it. And, <laughs> you know, that, that's what I have to say about that. So for us, you know, we're an HR person place, but we still have we have small things that I would call IoT. But the thing that we we tried to focus in on recently was providing a larger umbrella, a security blanket, if you will, and and more focus on managing the supply chain. And so starting to look at supply chain risk management holistically, you know, where does it sit? Who owns it? Is the, is the CIO going to own it? The CIO doesn't want to own the Wi-Fi and the cars. Okay, well, then, you know, who's going to own the supply chain? And so we've got a big push coming up this year to start looking at, you know, what does supply chain risk management look like for us, which is why I asked you about that tool and, and, and what does it do? Because, you know, we're not going to be able to put this toothpaste back in the tube. It, it's it's already gone. It just, it's out. You, you can't You can't really put it back. And so then how do we how do we harness it? How do we manage it? How do we continue to create countermeasures to manage the risk? Because the, the threat is, is ever evolving and technology is forever moving fast. And if we're gonna stay ahead of it, then we've got to have strategies and tools to you know create countermeasures in a timely fashion to, to deal with that, whether it's IoT or whether it's our Wi-Fi solutions, whether it's our PIP card readers, uh, whether it's the Wi-Fi that are in the cars now. Um, all of those things are going to continue to evolve, and th those threats are just going to continue to extend. So then, how do we how do we create countermeasures to to um, to combat that? Well, this has been such a wonderful discussion. I want to thank all of you for joining today. Before we wrap up, I will just let you say any parting words you'd like about this topic and any of the discussions we had today. So, Melvin, we'll start with you. Well, I, I think I'll I'll just reiterate that nothing changes like change. Um, we're we're going to continue to be be um, to be to evolve, and as we evolve, the threats are going to evolve. You know, as I said to my director, um, as we're we're battling for for money for our IT budgets, I said, you know, my when I was single, my grocery bill was a hundred dollars. I, I, when I got married, it's, it's seven hundred dollars. I can't put that back. So we can't continue to want to be modern at, at yesterday's prices. And so we got to continue as he laughs. Uh, we got to continue to, uh, if we're going to modernize, we've got to sustain the modernization and we got to make true investments as we continue to grow. So thanks. Yeah, I'll just say that I really enjoyed um, learning a lot from actually everybody today. Uh, the conversation has been really good. And, and in my mind, I think about our hugely, um, you know, our huge geographic footprint. We're in 176 countries and 270 something posts, right? Because most countries, every country has the embassy, and then a lot of the countries have consulates too. 
So um, the solutions are, are, are never one size fits all for us, um, given the security, uh, technical threat environment, all of these kinds of things, environment, environment. Um, and then in, in Washington, even uh, the, the mission is so vast. So we do need a, a diversity of solutions and we do need um, to make space for innovation and um, whether that innovation comes from the newer workforce that we're bringing in or whether the innovation comes from our industry partners. Um, and so I, I think I, I'm really excited about um, the zero trust architecture and how we move to a place where we can innovate in smaller, um, more contained environments, um, so that so that you know we don't just keep saying no, you can't put that on the network. No, you can't do that. Can't go on the network, right? Like that's the that's the State Department I grew up on. So then you know there's shadow IT, and then there's a non-enterprise network, and then boy, isn't that risky, right? So I, I see us um, uh, pivoting, and and that's. That's really that's really then where we start to talk back to what I, I mentioned first, interoperability, because it is data, right? The systems have to be interoperable, even if they're containerized so that they're more secure, they have to be interoperable. And then um, I look forward to delivering services that look and feel more like the services we get in our in our daily lives. I know that a lot of the, the government services even internal, you know, to our employees inside the Department of State, just don't have the design features and the the focus on on less friction. So I think um, we have gotten a lot better at cyber, and now there's these automated tools, so we don't have to have binders of ATOs lined up on the walls and things like that. Um, but I, I think the next focus is all interoperability, and then. Um, digital uh design and 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 really focusing there at least i hope it is over over i love it <laughs> um so I'll, I'll leave you with two thoughts um one everything is data and data is everything okay you have been listening to us through visual data auditory data you process that data because it was delivered in English and you were able to parse it, right? And integrate it into your own thought processes. Your, your, your body as we speak has all kinds of feedback loops that are measuring data constantly. And as a result, have adrenal glands or thyroid glands or your pancreas producing all kinds of things based on data. And then they adjust the data, right? Now, externally, we have to be as concerned about metadata. Okay, because data without metadata is almost worthless. Okay, and that's very important. You hear a lot of talk about data, you don't hear as much about metadata. It's just as important, right? If you tell me that your glucose level is 120, that means nothing to me unless I know that it's millimoles per deciliter and that there's a range at which that is okay and a range at which that's not okay. Right? The same is true with temperature, right? There's metadata. The same is true that the fact that we speak in English, basically Italian. Right. And you have a metadata set that says, okay, this is a language I know. And your brain actually, if you speak multiple languages, will actually adapt on the fly to the metadata that it has about English or French or Italian uh, or everything else. And so 
when you look at it from that standpoint, then everything that we do is always about data, right? All of the information systems are all about capturing, processing, analyzing, and disseminating data. So it becomes the most important thing in the world. And so it must be protected at all costs, right? Just you, like your body has to be protected at all costs, your organs have to be protected at all costs, because if one of them fails to function, then you die, right? And so it's important to keep that in mind. But the metadata is where the improvements really come to the, to, to, to the table, right? Because you're able to ascertain exact measurement and standards by which you can measure it and against which you can act, right? So in that context, even with artificial intelligence, right, the data and the metadata are going to regulate everything that you do. And as a matter of fact, is everything that you are and everything that the universe is, right? And once you understand the globality of that, it becomes a lot easier to understand how important it is, the importance of metadata, and how to go about managing it all. All right, well, big round of applause yeah. for all of you. Great way to end that panel. So thank you so much again. We've got great resources. If you're looking to get more insights and details on a range of technology that we discussed in this podcast and other topics as well, check out our resources, books, courses, checklists, explainer videos, webinars, and more at govfuture.com slash resources, tailored for our GovFuture listeners. Again, that's govfuture.com slash resources, and we'll make sure to link to that in the show notes as well. To view this episode's show notes, find additional episodes, subscribe to this podcast, and join the fastest growing community of government innovators, go to govfuture.com slash podcast. This sound recording and its contents are copyright GovFuture, all rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening to the GovFuture podcast and catch you at the next episode.